Welcome to the show. Today we are going back into the archives of the podcast. This was recorded in 2016, June of 2016, at the Airbnb where I was staying in Anaheim, California during the time of the ITG conference there at the, I think it was the Hyatt in Anaheim. And I was able to get Bob Reeves, get a little bit of his uh, time. Uh, away from the floor at the Bob Reeves uh, table there at the exhibit booth. And we took a little car ride down to my Airbnb and got to pick his brain a little bit about mouthpieces, about his own personal journey, career, both as a player as well and as a uh, mouthpiece maker. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. And Bob, although he's not directly involved with it as far as the production, hosting and whatnot, uh, is the, I guess, the proprietor, the Bob Reeves podcast. If you think of trumpet podcasts, you probably think of the other side of the bill that is sponsored and put on by the Bob Reeves Corporation. An interesting story. I have to share this, and I'm kind of kicking myself about how all this went down. When I first started this show in 2016, I purchased the domain trumpetpodcast.com, and that was when I was fully immersed in making this show, Trumpet Dynamics, like this was going to be my career. This is going to be my life as a podcaster. Well, I got diverted. My attention got diverted a little bit with various projects. And this one uh, went to the back burner. I'll just say that. And I realized maybe I should let another Trumpet podcast have this domain. And in hindsight, I should have asked for a little bit more compensation than a beer, but that's what I settled for. I contacted John Snell, who I believe is still the host of the show. I'm not sure. I haven't listened to it for years. Uh, But I contacted John and said, hey, I've got this URL and it might work for you. You can have it if you want it. So eh, kind of kicking myself for not getting a little bit of money because it is a valuable podcast, but uh, it's a valuable URL. But uh, if you go to trumpetpodcast.com, it's going to take you right to the outstanding Other Side of the Bell podcast. So little interesting tidbit of history. Trumpet trivia, next time you're uh, passing time backstage between sets, then you can impress your friends with this knowledge of Trumpet Podcast lore. Trumpetpodcast.com was originally purchased by yours truly. But it's in capable hands, and I have no regrets. All right. We are going to go to the interview with Bob Reeves, and I pressed record after I asked the question, what got you started on the trumpet, which is the first question I ask pretty much every person on this podcast. So let's get to it. I spent four years in the Navy became a machinist, went to work for the Navy after I got out for another four years in a machinery tool making apprenticeship. And when I got out of there, I went to work for Lockheed at different companies, but it was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to study music and I wanted to play the trumpet. 
So after the Navy, you hadn't played the trumpet? I went through an apprenticeship after the Navy. In machinery? In machinists and tool making. Okay. Yeah. And then after that, you started to play the trumpet? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So you were a young man when you started? Yeah, I was... Not, I was I, when I first started to play the trumpet, I think I was 27 or just 28. Okay. I, I went to uh, L.A. City College, and it was like a conservatory at that time. It was nothing like it is today. And I found out Johnny Kleiman was the best teacher, and he turned out to be the best trumpet player I ever heard. And I've heard many trumpet players that this guy could play anything. Really? Johnny Kleiman? Yeah. He's first trumpet at Fox mm. for 25 years. Mm. And every day was sight reading, get it on tape, and get out of the way. <laughs> uh, he's a really a great trumpet player. Mm. What about his playing differentiated himself from others? What about his playing was so great in comparison with other players, do you think? He had one of the greatest trumpet sounds that I've maybe ever heard. Huh. It's a shame that he didn't do any solo recording, but he could have gone in any night and Maurice Andre said, I'm sick, I can't play the performance. He would have gone in and played it better. He's a remarkable trumpet player. Huh. Greatest time, greatest pitch, range off the wall that was never, ever recorded. Truly a great trumpet player. And when you went for a lesson, you played one note, he knew what your problem was, and that's what you worked on. And he wouldn't listen to anything you knew how to do. He says, I'm here to fix what you can't do. <laughs> Did you ever have lessons with him? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Off and on for four years. Yeah. While you were in college. I got to hear him. He only played in two lessons. It was really remarkable. But he's on all the big epic film scores out of 20th century. He did the first, the sound logo for 20th century. That's his playing. It's been played, re-recorded about three times after that. I know Malcolm McNabb did it once. But his, the original, is a remarkable sound. That's so. the one I have in my head. It's the one I am always comparing everyone else. <laughs> So after the lion yeah. roar, the dun, 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 yeah. dun, 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 that's yeah. him, huh? Yeah, yeah. But listen that's to cool. the, the old big epic films. Okay. And you hear the sound. All right. Try to find a. Maybe he's on YouTube. I'll try to compare them on the website, and people can listen to this. Yeah, he's really was a remarkable player. Johnny Clement. Okay. I learned something new. Hi. What was it like to learn the trumpet when you're 27 years old, and how long did it take you before you could? play at a I think level. three years. About three years. Yeah. When I came out of school, I was first trumpet in a concert band, a brass choir, and a second stage band. And one of the fellows that I made friends with while I was in school, I came out to play in his band for about three, four, five years. It was an all-black band. I was the only white player in the band. And I was there because I could read. <laughs> And this is here in L.A.? Yeah, the other guy, yeah. Yeah, the other guys, they were not serious. They were weekend warriors. And, okay. And so if we played something through once or twice, they all got it, and they all played well. And they just didn't read very well. 
for whatever the reasons were, I don't know. But so in three years, you were you progressed pretty well in a well, short amount of time. I found out how to practice. Okay. What did you find out about how to practice? I came to a lesson one day, and, and I was the first time I played a duet with him. And I got halfway down a page, and I stopped and took the mouthpiece off my mouth. And he said, who the hell told you to stop? I said, well, my mouth is sore. He says, I don't care how your mouth feels. He said, nobody else does either. <laughs> I went home, and I figured out how to play longer. So when I couldn't play, to, I would play lower. But I kept the mouthpiece on my mouth. And I would play until I could play four hours at a time without taking it off. Four hours at a and time. that's how I practiced all the way through school. I did everything I had to do at least twice. And I was studying at a Clark, and I said, geez, I can't get any more range. There's no, more, no high notes in this book. He said, oh, really? You ever hear of 8BA? <laughs> so that ended that discussion. <laughs> so the point is, even if you have to take it down, like still play, is that sort yeah. of the, the takeaway from that? But, uh, you know, when I went through to Clark, get the end of the page, you take it up an octave. Okay. So I built the range up pretty quick by one little suggestion. I guess you, you probably had, you were thinking, I'm going to be a professional trumpet player. What was your career aspirations? I only played, I, I played some Latin jobs, and I played with this one band for about four years, and then I had surgery on my kidney for a stone, and I never played again. Yeah, but before the kidney stone, did you think that you wanted to be like a John oh, yeah. Kleiman? Did yeah, you... I thought I wanted to be yeah. a regular guy that just did anything <laughs> that came along, and okay. just to play the trumpet. So I you just wanted to... to be a trumpet player? Yeah. I, as far as ambition for a real career, I never thought about it. I just wanted to play whatever came along. All right. Yeah, well, then... The kidney stones turned into a, a real career, didn't it? Yeah, so. it turned into a career. And Johnny Kleiman said, why don't you go over and talk to Carol Proviance? He needs somebody. And so I went over there. He said, no, nah, I don't need anybody. The next day, he called me. <laughs> I went over. And I already knew so much about machining that in 15 minutes, I thought I could make a mouthpiece. First, but, Can you first tell about the kidney stone and why you weren't able to play the trumpet after you well, had that? Well, when I had the surgery, I was the last case, and it was pretty late. And so the orderly, when it was finally over, he ran through the hospital with this gurney back to the ward. And when there was no one to help him get me off the stretcher, he took my right arm and dragged me off the stretcher to the bed, which tore all the sutures loose from the inside on the, from the surgery. And when the doctor came the next day, I told him, and he said, we don't do anything over. And my side swole up like a grapefruit, and it stayed that way for nearly nine months. And when I tried to play after that, I got such pain in my side that I didn't try anymore. But I already had done some work for Proviance, and then he introduced me to Eldon Benj, and I interviewed Eldon, and, or he interviewed me, and he said, we're going to build a new sea trumpet as soon as you come back to work in two weeks. And he was killed backing out of his driveway to follow a weekend. So I watched the guys who were coming in to advise uh, 
uh, Donald Banch's son how to really make the trumpet right. But they were some of the good players in Los Angeles who got to fix the Ben's trumpet. So one day I went into Donald's office and I said, you need me. And he says, what makes you think so? I said, I knew your father. I know how to make things. And I'd like to learn how to become a bell maker. So he hired me. So I studied making bells from Pete Savarelli. And in the meantime, when Pete wasn't there, I would make parts for the trumpet, build a valve casings or pistons or assemble parts. I did anything in the shop. It was, nothing was a mystery to me. I already knew how to make things. Far more intricate and precision than a trumpet. But I had been working for Carol Provides for about a year, thinking I knew how to make mouthpieces. And one day, uh, a trumpet player came in, who was a band leader, well-known in town. And after an hour, I realized I don't know how to help him. And I also talked to Kleiman about it. And Kleiman said, well, you got to get out of Hemholtz, and you got to get this book, and you got to study this stuff. So I measured every mouthpiece I could find, and I made a graph to indicate the dimensions of the different aspects of all of these mouthpieces. So I, be I began to see what the parameters were to make good ones and bad ones, and all of that. And so I really studied the making of mouthpieces, but I had the greatest trumpet players in the world coming through my shop. I mean, if I played the trumpet, I would never pick one up and play in front of any of these people. <laughs> it would be absurd. <laughs> but what I did was I listened to them. I listened to the front of the trumpet. I didn't want to hear what they heard. I want to hear what the audience heard. So I taught myself how to really listen to the trumpet. And I never, ever picked a horn up for any reason. And I would never show anybody how to play the trumpet. I think my job was to listen and find out what they needed. And that's what I concentrated on for the last 50 years, is helping people play the trumpet better. At what point did you transition from working for the Benj Corporation to starting your own well, business? I worked at Benj for three years. And I didn't get along with anybody there, except Pete, the bellbaker, because I knew more than anybody there, and I refused to have him or let them tell me how to do something. I could make anything they asked me to make, so I didn't need their help to show me. And they resented it, and the relationship got worse and worse till nobody spoke to me. So after three years, I just went in and told Donald, I'm going to leave. As it's had enough. And so Johnny Kleiman had already bought me my first lathe. And it was a loan, which I paid back. And, and I had many great nights with him working in my little shop in my house and conversation and how to play the trumpet and think about lots of things from someone who really could play. And so then I had to move out of my house because the postman noticed I was getting too many boxes. He would have turned me in if he'd had enough evidence. As your postman is a spy. Okay, what would the postman be suspicious of? You're running a business out of your home? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was illegal to... They get paid to... for that. The postman did? Yeah, they get paid for it. 
Okay, you didn't hear that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why at that time it was illegal to run a business out of your home? Why? Was well, it? I mean, I wasn't making enough money that I could afford a shop. Why, why would that be illegal to because run a business? Because you're not paying taxes on it. Okay. So under the table. So under the counter job. Yeah, okay. But I had to start somewhere. I found a little store on a side street in Hollywood, and a doctor owned a business, and he liked the fact that I was doing something there that was useful and different. And uh, the 10 years, he never raised my rent. I paid $125 a month for 10 years until his daughter inherited it. Okay. Three years, she sold it. Three years, the Chinaman had it. The Chinaman sold it. He sold it to an Iranian, and my rent was now really getting more than I could handle. I left there for three times the space and actually the same amount of money. But it was a lot further from Hollywood, and so I had very little walk-in business. I had some of the greatest walk-in business. I had such great players from Hoke and Hardenberger down to all the great studio players in Hollywood and Chuck Finley when he was starting out. And it was just a number of players was really remarkable that came in there. And I found ways to help all of them. And so it, it was a terrific spot to be in. I was in Hollywood 30 years. But when I moved to Valencia 20 years ago, it became more of a internet by that time, sales, and then we, we started to do more traveling, going to other countries. And I had, in the meantime, I had built this little travel lathe so I could do valve alignments on the road. I had really perfected the valve alignment in Hollywood. I finally had the right kind of machinery for the accuracy and Making the bore of the piston exactly in the center of the bore of the casing, which turned out to be very critical. Within five thousandths out of alignment, the player now knows it. If he had never had a valve alignment, he didn't notice it. But once it was right, it became critical to him. So I just kept working at that. So when I do a valve alignment, I keep every dimension, and I don't ever need to see the horn again because all the information's on paper and in a data, electronic database. So if you were in Alaska, you said you need new pads, I'd look up your record, I'd measure the correct set of pads and mail the pads to you. You put them in and so it's, it's a serious part of what I do. I call it the foundation. When the valves are correctly done, you could better analyze what the mouthpiece needs to do and how it's going to sound the best it can sound. Plus, I had already invented the sleeves to adjust the gap, and uh, the gap is critical, and I've tested many times. The gap is critical to six thousandths. That's two hairs on your head. Can you describe the gap? What is that? The gap is the distance from the very end of the mouthpiece to the start of the lead pipe. There's a space in there. And it actually turns out it's like moving your tuning slide to adjust your pitch. 
you are adjusting the mouthpiece to fit the trumpet. Uh, it's a very critical dimension. Now, strong players, it means less than weaker players because a strong player don't overcome anything. Johnny Clyburn could play anything. It didn't matter what it was. He played his complete repertoire on any mouthpiece. But he was a muscle. His face was a muscle. And great ears. The main components of your business now are mouthpieces and valve alignments. Is that... Yeah. Gap receivers. But we just recently... Working with a trombone player, Noah Goldstein, making trombone mouthpieces from tenor to bass. And so we have about half of the models already made. And the first two prototypes Noah took to the Chicago Orchestra because he's often invited to play with them. And when they, when he went to leave, they said, you're not taking these mouthpieces back. So the first two prototypes are in the Chicago Orchestra. <laughs> so the trombone mouthpieces are turning out to be pretty good also. But I include things in the trombone mouthpiece that I do with trumpet mouthpieces that makes these pl mouthpieces play. And if I told you what that was, I'd have to kill you. Okay. That's okay. But the trombone mouthpieces... All of the models play really well that we've made so far. And uh, the other day I met a tuba player, and we were talking, and he said, my friend and I have these two tuba mouthpieces that are the only two this person's made. And we would like to get a copy. So we may even end up making tuba mouthpieces. I don't know for sure, but that's a good possibility. Mm. It's amazing. I go for 50 years only making trumpet mouthpieces to now making the rest of them. Tell me about, um, you, you were talking about, you could no longer play the trumpet and now you're listening. What did you, what skills did you develop that you're able to help trumpet players by listening to them rather than being a player yourself? When I'm listening to somebody play, one of the first things I notice or I'm looking for is where does the tone start? That means where does it start for my ear? I don't consider the player at all. I don't care what's going on with the player. Like Clyman said, your lip is sore? I don't care. You got to get through the music. So I don't consider the player. I could tell you whether the note is starting inside of the bell at the front of the bell or outside the bell. I have trained myself to listen for that. Then I listen to the projection, to the timbre, and then I ask the player what he's looking for. So I can incorporate the things I've already learned from him into trying to guide him, or not guide him, but guide myself into making something that he's looking for. It's a complicated little uh, skill, but that's what I do. I try to make a player play better. And I say a lot of times, if the trumpet's hard to play, you never get to your song. 
and I will never listen to the trumpet player play an etude. I want to hear his song. I want to hear him make music. That's what I'm interested in. What's the difference between playing an etude and then explain the difference? Well, some people play etudes like yeah. it's an exercise. Okay. They, it's not like the guitar. Hmm. You could listen to a guitar play scales and it sounds like music if it's a good guitar player. But you can't do that with a trumpet. Maybe three people that I've ever heard could do that. But I want to hear a song. I love hearing opera singers sing because they're telling a story. So I want to hear everybody else tell me your story. I want to hear someone like Chetty Baker who can't even play a great range on a trumpet but he never leaves his song at home. I'm making some sense to you? Yeah. Huh? Your business is more on the technical side of things. The yeah. valve alignments, mouthpieces. Yeah. That those are very concrete. It's not really Yeah. You know, it, it's very technical, but the end game for you is you want a musician to make music. Yeah. So how do you see your work with the making a great mouthpiece, gap receiver, valve alignment? I guess the machinist is very simple, very cut and dry. Yeah, but making, cut and dried. There you go, okay. <laughs> but making music is very ethereal. You can go, any, everyone has their own songs. What, what is the connection between machining and making music? If I knew the absolute answer to that, I would be a billionaire. I've thought about this many times. How do you take a dimension like... 20,000s and know what kind of music that would make. You can't do it. I can't tell you when I bake something what the dimensions will be or what they are. I'm listening to it and I can tell you that I always have the sound of climate in my head. Now I don't want everybody to sound like him but it's a foundation for me and I think everything has a foundation, whether I'm making a sleeve for a trumpet mouthpiece, whatever I'm making has a foundation. It has a starting point. It has a base that you measure everything from. Everything that you make in a machine shop has a tolerance. It's plus or minus five thousandths, ten thousandths, sixty-fourth of an inch, and none of those can tell you anything about music. So... The reason I tell you that is that every part you get that probably doesn't have a brother or a sister. Because every piece is different. And the amount of dimensions that are in a mouthpiece would be very hard to describe. You have a volume in a cup of the mouthpiece. You have a bore size. You have a bore length. You have a backbore of complicated shapes. You have a length of a mouthpiece. You have a size of the shank that fits the trumpet. Those are just the basic dimensions of the mouthpiece. You can get far more complicated than that, as I did in the measuring of all the mouthpieces I measured in the beginning. I learned that there were many more things to a mouthpiece than I could ever imagine. And if I could put a label on anything, <laughs> I would put Bach in my hip pocket. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not well, that I want to.
Is it difficult to, you'll make a custom mouthpiece for a player. Like you could make one for me, right? A custom mouthpiece starts with a few parameters. I want to know, first of all, what is the rim that you love? Don't tell me about the rim you like. I want to know about the rim you love. You don't get it anywhere with your girlfriend telling her you like her. You have to tell her you love her. I want you to give me the rim you love. And I work from the rim to the cup and thinking about the music that you want to play, the type of music. And then I think about the horn, what I have to match it to. And then I get you to play things and I find out where to get the resistance factor that you will think is no resistance. There's always resistance. A resistance could be negative or it could be positive. If the resistance is too negative, then you will have a great low register. If the resistance is too high, you will have a great high register. It's making some balance that feels like to you no resistance. And that's where I'm trying to I've tried, that's the direction I'm trying to find when I'm working with you. It's interesting because people are different. You could play one day, one way today and then another day, another way tomorrow because what if well, I get I, sick? Is there, is it difficult to I see find that. one solution for one player? No. no. No? I find that to be their problem. Okay. How can a player overcome that problem? How can they? You uh, ever heard of how you get to Carnegie Hall? Yeah, it's on 42nd and Broadway, right? No. Practice. Practice. All right. That's your problem. Thank you. If I can make you sound great on a mouthpiece today and you can't play that way tomorrow, it's probably you may have overdone something today, which makes you feel tired tomorrow. But as a player, you need to recognize how to find it. I don't care how tired you are, you can play, but you have to know how to get there. And that's the discovery that the musician has to make. And it is not an excuse for me. If I got you to play well once, then I may make adjustments based on the future, but it's more reluctant than not. But those adjustments are going to be pretty small. And I'm not unhappy to work with anybody more than once. And I don't throw anything in anybody's face. But I work with people. I do things to discover what's happened. And I think it goes all the way back to John Kleiman and learning to play the trumpet. He taught me how to look and work for things. And... In some way, I do that to everybody I work with. Hmm. I don't tell them about it. I don't talk about it. For me, it's always discovery. Sometimes I say that now it's ancient history, but why does Vladimir Horowitz have his piano shipped to London to do a concert and his piano tuner goes with the trumpet, or with the piano, rather? Because he does not want to think about the piano. He wants to think about the music.
that's how I want the trumpet and a mouthpiece to be. I don't want you to think about anything but the music. And that's why I work harder and harder to make those components as consistent as they can be for you. In making standard mouthpieces, that's not always possible. But if I work with somebody, it gets better. And that's how I go about life. <laughs> All right. Bob, it has been such a pleasure to meet up with you here at the ITG conference. And I've enjoyed meeting you, hearing your story. And before I close out an interview, I like to give the guest an opportunity. I just want to give you the floor. If there's anything on your mind that you'd like to say to people listening to this, young, old, experienced, inexperienced, the floor is yours. I want to thank you, first of all, for asking me. You will never hear another podcast exactly the same as this one, because it is off the top of my head. But I think I should know the job after 50 years. So I thank you very much. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on this show, please email us at podcast at jamesnewcombuntrumpet.com. And to subscribe to James Newcomb's email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombuntrumpet.com. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon.